Welcome to a new series of Humans of Healthcare. I'm Joe Thompson, one of the new hosts. I'm an FY2 doctor working in Leeds, and you'll meet the other two new hosts, Stephanie and Amelia, over the next few episodes. This year, as with everything else, things are going to be a little bit different. For obvious reasons, we've had to record episodes remotely, so apologies if the sound quality isn't as good as it normally might be. That being said, we've got some really interesting guests lined up, and our first guest is Dr. Megan Evans. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Today, I've got Megan Evans, who's a doctor who trained in Leeds Uni. She has done lots of tropical medicine work and lots of work abroad with various different charities. So that's what we'll be speaking to her about today. She's currently finished foundation years in St. James's and in Pinderfields and is in her third year since finishing foundation where she's done lots of work abroad. So welcome to the podcast, Megan. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. No problem at all. So um, reading through some of the really interesting things that you've done, the first sort of experience that you had with working overseas in a medical environment was in your electives. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so when I was thinking about what I wanted to do for my elective, I felt as though I wanted a bit of a different experience um, rather than working in a hospital or a kind of normal classic healthcare setting. I wanted to try and do something a little bit different. Um, So I was essentially just Googling and searching and trying to find different kind of medical organisations abroad. Um, And I came across Floating Doctors, um, which is a charity that works out in Panama um, providing medical care for rural indigenous communities um, in the Bocas del Toro region of Panama. Um, and it just looked like the kind of thing that I thought looked interesting, um, went out there, absolutely loved it. And um, yeah, as you say, it's all kind of gone from there. Very good. So when you first started in Panama, what was the routine like? So you're a medical student at that point, possibly not as confident in a clinical environment and all of a sudden you put in a very different healthcare system uh, completely different problems that you're perhaps used to seeing here how did you find that initially um so yeah it was a bit daunting initially um but the staff and the other volunteers that I was, that I was working with um were amazing um the organization runs as I say mobile medical clinics so we would go out to a community set up a medical clinic Um, and see patients all day. As a medical student, initially, I started off seeing patients with another another provider, so a doctor. Um, Towards the end of my elective, I was seeing patients independently. But just like in the UK, there was always senior supervision. um, So I could always ask questions and, uh, you know, get advice for patients that I needed to. Um, Floating Doctors also had a really comprehensive set of clinical guidelines which was particularly helpful with um, unusual presentations or unusual conditions um, that we're not used to seeing um, so much in the UK. That's really interesting. So what kind of stuff were you seeing out there in a daily clinic? Um, So obviously the variety is huge. You have everything from your normal GP type consultations with um, high blood pressures and diabetics, um, musculoskeletal pains, um, you have sexual health, you have lots of um, pediatrics, lots of antenatal care, um, family planning, so providing the con- contraceptive injection, um, and then, you know, all the way over to more tropical medicine type presentations, so 
um, some HIV, some leishmaniasis, dengue fever, um, worms. Um, and then obviously we can have anyone looking up. So, you know, someone who suffered a trauma from a machete wound or someone who has an acute abdomen, you know, anyone in the, in the vicinity who needed medical help would, would come to us. So it was really a little bit of everything. That's brilliant. And and obviously you've you've since gone back to work with the same charity in Panama, uh, probably three or four years later. Um, how did you find it was different once you'd had more clinical experience in the UK going back to the same environment? Yeah, so I went back in my F3 year um, and it was um, a, a very different experience. When I went for my elective, obviously I was a, a medical student um, and I was really in the volunteer role um, in the organisation. When I went back um, in F3, I had a role as a lead medical provider. So I was one of the staff members in the organisation, which meant that as well as seeing patients um, providing you know, medical services in clinics, I also had a bit more of a leadership role. Um, so we would help plan the clinics, um, do some of the logistics, uh, look after some of our volunteers, you know, supervising some of the medical students who came through running induction sessions for new volunteers. So lots more of the, the planning, management and leadership side as well, um, which I actually really enjoyed. And I, and I wasn't expecting to. Um, it's not something that I'd had a lot of experience in before, obviously, just with having done foundation. Um, but it was actually something that, that I did really enjoy doing. Um, from the medical side of things, you know, I, I did have some more clinical experience and I felt as though that was very helpful. Um, there was still, you know, there was still much more senior doctors always around and available. Um, so, you know, as with everyone, still need to ask for advice or, or help if you're not sure. Sure. I think it's it's interesting that you were able to get so involved in the sort of logistical and uh, leadership side of things. How... Um, because I can imagine there's quite a, a a lot of key differences you notice between working in the UK and working in Panama. What were some of the key differences you found from the logistical point of view? Yeah, so I found it really interesting. I think when you're working in a remote and resource limited environment, you really need to think about what's the biggest positive impact that we can make um, when we go to this community and run this clinic, because it might be that we're not seeing those patients again for another 12 weeks or so. Um, generally, what, what floating doctors does is they will go to a clinic, uh, go to a community, run the clinic, um, and then go to a different community the next day or the next week and cycle through all of these different places that they visit. Um, so by the time they get round back to the beginning to see the first place again, it's generally you know 10 to 12 weeks later. And that really made me think, okay, what's the maximum amount of benefit that we can give in this one trip? So um, do we have lots of um, pregnant patients in this community, in which case we need to make sure that we are taking our portable ultrasound machine and bringing a provider with us who has good ultrasound skills? Or, um, okay, last time we went to this community, we know that we have um, at least 15 patients who are all on that formin and they need, each of them will need a 12-week supply um, when we go. So we need to make sure that we've got enough of various medications to cover the patients they're expecting, plus any extras who might show up. So it was really just about planning 
um, what you're what you're expecting to see, and then obviously um, extras for emergencies and uh, a bit of leeway. That's really difficult, I guess, bringing because you've logistically sort of bringing the whole hospital with you, so you can do all your investigations and your pharmacy work there as well. Um, in terms of the different communities that you're you're visiting, um, there's there's probably quite a lot of barriers in terms of the consultation that you had to overcome. For example, language barriers and cultural differences and different health beliefs. How did you find those issues and how did you get around them? Yeah, so language was a really interesting one. Obviously, in Panama, um, they speak Spanish. I have some limited Spanish, um, certainly not fluent, um, but conversational. Um, And the challenge was made greater by the fact that in um, lots of the communities that we visited, not everyone actually even spoke Spanish. Um, the first language for lots of our patients was actually Nobe or Nobere. Um, so this is the, the traditional language of the indigenous uh, the indigenous communities that we were um, visiting. So actually, we were having you know a consultation where it might be that the patient was speaking Spanish as their second language, with Nobe being their first language, and I'm speaking Spanish as my second language obviously English being my first language. So you do really come across quite significant um, communication difficulties. Luckily, we had amazing Spanish translators. And in communities where we had a large patient population who didn't speak Spanish, we would also often have no-bay translators and there would be local people and community members who would uh, be able to help us for the phonics. Um, That was amazing, Um, although obviously... In itself, that brings in lots of more, you know, new issues in terms of confidentiality and patients sharing sensitive information. So it was it was definitely uh, definitely different from working at home, but um, it it worked it worked well most of the time. Good, good. And in terms of the the types of healthcare you're providing, so you've sort of talked about a range of things that here would be split into primary and secondary care and you're doing it all in one go as you're moving around these different communities um you mentioned for example contraception um are there any significant sort of cultural different health beliefs that you found challenging at times yeah definitely um i think in terms of contraception and sexual health there were um definitely certain communities and certain patients where you would really notice that it was a topic that they would shy away from. Um, sometimes the women would want contraception, um, but didn't feel able to say that if the male member of the family, a husband or a father or a brother, was present. Um, oftentimes, uh, we would try to take the um, patient to a our private area, so our private examination room, um, to actually administer the contraceptive injection. Um, because our consultations were happening happening um, generally outside in a, in a kind of open space and you'd have patients waiting on benches or, or on the floor to be seen. Um, if they saw someone getting an injection, they knew that that was probably a contraceptive injection. So we'd take them to the private area that we had, which we would use to perform examinations and different procedures um, and give the injection in there. So you just do need to be mindful of, of those things, particularly around kind of sexual health. Sure. Um, 
the other the other really interesting aspect of it, I guess, was um, the health beliefs. So in the populations um, where we were, there were kind of traditional healers. Um, so the botanicos were essentially kind of jungle pharmacists who wow. would provide um, traditional remedies generally from the, the plants um, growing locally um, for various ailments. Um, and there were also uh, members of communities called curanderos who are kind of spiritual healer type um, figures in the community as well. Um, and so it was important um, to appreciate that you're not necessarily going to be the patient's first choice of healthcare provider. It may be that they've tried some, you know, some herbal tea or um, something from the from the botanico initially. That's not worked, and that's why they've, you know, eventually come to you. Um, and I think it's it's important to remember that you shouldn't be trying to change those health beliefs or come into a, a community and a culture and say, actually, what you're doing is wrong. I think you can work with the patients and say, okay, um, you've tried taking, you know, this herbal tea for your chronic headaches. That's not worked. Why don't we, we try something else and see if we can come up with a different solution? Um, and, and working with patients like that um, was, was much more effective. So would you often find that the actual more sort of um, Western medicine in inverted commas was normally the second or third line for these patients? W- would most of them have tried these local community healers first? Um, oftentimes, yes, although it did vary a lot between the different communities and also just different families and patients within those communities. Um, as with any culture, there's huge variation in beliefs and in way of life. Um, some of the villages that we went to were a lot more traditional um, in their way of life and followed much more of the traditional Nove um, culture and beliefs. And others who maybe had um, slightly easier access to um, the kind of mainland Panama society or way of life had, um, you know, more, more modern or more westernised um, beliefs and, and feelings towards that. So, so there was a lot of variation. Yeah. Did, did you ever see anyone with what might have been an easily treatable condition while you're out there who maybe was afraid to seek help from the doctors and um, that, that, you know, you could have, you could see here them getting treated quite easily? Yeah, I think there was um, a lot of mistrust between the Nobe people and the uh, Panamanian healthcare system and the Panamanian authorities. I think traditionally, there has been some conflict between those groups and the Indigenous Novo people feel as though they haven't really had the support in terms of infrastructure and healthcare and all those things that um, that they might need. Um, and I, I certainly heard stories of um, patients trying to access healthcare services um, and finding it really difficult to access those services. And the feeling from the patients was that that was a... Um, that was a kind of discrimination because they were part of this indigenous group. So there was definitely mistrust. Um, and what we would do um, sometimes is, is act as an advocate for our patients and uh, refer them to the secondary care services. You know, if they needed to see a, a surgeon on the mainland um, for a consultation, for example, 
we would make that referral and ensure that they got to that appointment and, and acted as a little bit of an advocate for them to access those services that are there for them and they can access under the Panamanian healthcare system. But actually, it's just really difficult and there are a lot of barriers to them accessing. Um, so that was really important, I think. So, Megan, you were talking about the the people in the communities you're visiting sometimes struggling to have access to the main hospital on, on mainland Panama. How far away are these communities from the nearest big centre where they could go have an operation or, or go to intensive care if they needed to? So the, the communities that Sochi's often visits um, cover a really wide area. Um, there is a small hospital which has some, some kind of inpatient facilities um, relatively close to some of the communities, kind of 20 minutes by boat, something like that. Um, but that doesn't have any surgical provision and certainly not intensive care. Um, the large hospital on the mainland um, is, a, is a way off. Um, and and that would be you know probably an hour or two hour boat ride followed by an hour on on a bus journey or taxi um, to get to to get to the uh, hospital and and the the furthest communities that we um, visit and that we serve um, take uh, about six or seven hours in boat um, to get to for our volunteer staff so it's a fair old way for some of them yeah. That must present quite a lot of challenges, I suppose, um, in terms of the management of some acute conditions. Did, did you ever have any emergencies where you did have to take someone to the mainland hospital? Yeah, so we had a few kind of emergency patient evacuations, um, which are always slightly stressful. Um, but for each of the communities, we have a good idea of the nearest hospitals, um, kind of evacuation plans and what have you. Um, I remember there was one patient in one of the first clinics that I went to when I went back to my room, we got asked to visit the home of a young man who could come to clinic to see us. Um, and I went myself with one of the one of the other doctors. Um, and it was a gentleman who was HIV positive, who had um, tuberculosis and had recently been discharged from hospital. Um, he had somehow been discharged home without any of his antiretrovirals or TB medication, um, and he had also been on a, a reducing course of steroids, um, and it, he'd been discharged a couple of weeks ago, and not managed to get access to any of the, his medication, and so been completely off of it since then. Um, presented really unwell, and the, the concern was that because he'd suddenly stopped his steroids, that he was actually having an absolute crisis, or you know, an adrenal crisis. Um, so that was obviously a, an emergency evacuation, um, and we sent one of one of the other doctors and also one of our Panamanian staff members um, with the patient by boat to um, the nearest community, which is probably about two hours by boat. Right. Um, there, they have a small health centre, um, and from that point, it would have been another couple of hours um, by bus to the hospital um, so still a still a long long old way for, for him to travel but luckily that was a that was a really great outcome for the patient yeah that's stressful when you're out there have, have you got any any sort of other particular moments where you felt quite worried about patients 
the other one that I think stands out to me was um, a gentleman who I was asked to, to go and see again in his home, who, um, you know, patients everywhere will, will play down symptoms. Um, that's no different whether you're in, in Leeds or Panama. So the initial description that I got was, oh, it's a, it's a guy who's got, you know, a bit of, a bit of tummy ache. He's not very well. Um, and I went over in this, this chat was kind of peritonitic, hypotensive, tachycardic. Um, and the concern was that he had uh, quite severe appendicitis, potentially with a ruptured appendix. Um, uh, severely dehydrated, um, and hypotensive. So he was another, another acute emergency. And I was, I was very worried about that chat. Um, luckily we went too far from the hospital in that particular community. And um, so he was evacuated pretty speedily with uh, lots of logistical help from our wonderful clinic managers as well. So. Oh, it's scary. It's, it's just difficult to think. Um, because here you could, I mean, that's scary here where you've got access to everything. But when you're, even if, you know, even if you've got to get in an ambulance or something and, and commute any distance with a patient like that, that's quite stressful. Do you, do you normally accompany them on the journey? Yeah, so we, we would accompany the patients on, on those journeys, especially if, you know, they're that unwell. Um, and we would take a bag of, of kit with us. Um, so we would have um, limited resources, but at least something. Um, and obviously we were able to cannulate and give some fluids and some sort of antibiotics kind of before we set off and things like that. So we can do we can do some things, but ultimately, yeah, we just need to get them to the hospital as soon as possible. Very good. And so we've talked all this time about floating doctors in Panama, but you've of course done lots of other uh, medical work abroad, and um, I know that you've done some work in Slovenia. And also Madagascar doing some diving medicine. Could you tell us a bit about those two? Yeah, so um, Slovenia, um, the time that I spent there was actually on a course. It was on an exhibition of wilderness medicine course, which was run by World Extreme Medicine. Um, I did that at the beginning of my F3 year because I knew that I wanted to do some of this kind of remote medical work. And I thought it would be really useful. That was amazing. Really practical course, really hands-on, lots of remote and pre-hospital medicine. Um, and then I went out to Madagascar to volunteer as an expedition and dive medic um, with the organisation Blue Ventures. So I was responsible for looking after a group of volunteers who were going out to Madagascar, scuba diving every day, um, performing some marine conservation research. And I was the medic on site for any problems, any medical conditions, anything that came up. Um, and that was absolutely amazing as well. Yeah, wonderful. Wow. There's, and this is looking at the timeline of how you've done these things. So in your F3 year, you went to Slovenia to do the expedition in wilderness medicine. You did the dive medicine in Madagascar and then also had five months in Panama. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's, <laughs> Quite a busy year. That was all, that was all crammed in. Yeah, that was all crammed into my F3 year. I had planned, I had planned my year quite carefully in advance to try and get the most out of it. So going to say that must have taken quite some meticulous planning (laughs) yeah I was lucky with the days (laughs) and obviously the people doing f3 years and years out of training at the moment or or even gap years and electives it's not been a great year for traveling um when we are allowed to freely travel abroad again 
what advice do you have for people in planning their F3 year? Um, so I think definitely plan early. That would be my main um, my main point of advice. Think about what you want to do in your F3. Um, it comes around a lot quicker than you're expecting. Um, and you might find that opportunities have passed you by by the time you get around to thinking about it. So just really have a think and, and see what you want to get out of it. I knew that I wanted to try and do some med- medical work, but in different environments and in different situations. Um, so I was, you know, really just Googling and asking around and trying to find different opportunities. Um, plan early and, and yeah, and ask and get advice from people who've done it before. Um, definitely try to make the most out of the year. If you think, oh, I'll just, you know, do a bit of this, a bit of that, a bit of loafing, a bit of travel, that's absolutely fine. And lots of people do do that. Um, but I would say if you want to have an absolutely amazing year that where you have some amazing experiences, um, think carefully about the best way to spend that time because it does come and go very, very quickly, unfortunately. Which is why I've had uh, I've had an F four and an F five year as well. You can always uh, you can always extend it a little bit. <laughs> very good, very good. And um, in in terms of the um, the time you have spent away, so obviously these um, char- the charity work that you've done has provided great clinical experience. How much time did you have to sort of relax and do some non-medical stuff as well on these on these trips? Um, a fair amount of time when I was in Madagascar. Um, as an expedition medic, you're really only um, needed if there are uh, problems. Um, there were quite a few problems when I was away, but there was a fair amount of downtime too, and I was able to do some diving, which I love. Um, in Panama, I was very busy during the week, um, as you can imagine, with the clinics and all of the kind of leadership and, and logistics side of things as well. But at the weekends in Panama, I was actually working at a dive shop locally, um, and I did my dive master training and working as a, as a dive master um, on the weekends as well. So I managed to fit in some uh, some leisure time and some diving. So that's always that's always a bonus. Good, because you obviously the the work that you're doing is is such a great experience, but you want to be able to have that relaxation time when you go back into training or or start medical school or whatever it is that you're doing. doing yeah, next. absolutely, definitely, and I think that's that's important and, and having different experiences as well. You know, just having a little bit of a break from normal um, home work life, um, I think it just gives you a fresh perspective and gives you you know lots more inspiration and uh, enthusiasm for when you do get back home. And in terms of when you do return to working in the NHS, what were the main things that you found um, in terms of skills that you gained from the, the travel and charity work that you've done? Oh, good question. I think I'm, I have surprised myself on a few occasions in terms of my um, adaptability and uh, problem solving um, when you're in remote areas or, or resource limited environments, um, you kind of just have to get on and get things sorted with what you've got. And often you're, you know, everyone's looking at you as the doctor to sort things out and you kind of just have to get on with it. Um, and I think going forward into training, you know, I'm not one to 
to back down from a challenge if something needs organising, if something needs sorting, if um, you know there's a procedure that I'm I've only done a couple of times. I'm not the person to back down and say, oh no, I'm not sure I won't do it. I'll say, you know, as long as I feel that it's safe and I've got the appropriate experience and, and skills, then I will I'll go for it. Um, and I think I think you have to do that, especially when you get into training, um, to really make the most out of out of your training and out of your medical career. Yeah, I think that sounds very good. Were you ever, you know, just thinking about coming back and, and working in the NHS? Were you ever worried that you were going to enjoy it so much abroad that you would probably just stay there or, or think about doing something overseas long term? I think my family were concerned that I would never come back from Panama. Um, I, uh, I didn't have my return flight booked for a long time. So there was definitely some, uh, some conversations there. I think, I, I think, it, I think it's very tempting. Um, for me, I knew that I wanted to come home to continue my training. I think having um, the, the experience of an NHS training post and then getting to CCT and, and becoming a consultant will stand me in really good stead for continuing to do more work like this. Um, and certainly my plan is throughout my training um you know, possibly having more career breaks or taking different opportunities to have time out of training or or periods where I work abroad as part of my training. Um, and having having the experience of working in the NHS and being a more senior clinician, I think will enable me to do more interesting things and, and, and give me even more opportunities. So I, I, I did know that I wanted to come home, but it was, uh, it was tempting at times to, to stay out there. Very good. Well, Megan, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's been great speaking to you. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been lovely. If any listeners feel affected by the discussions on the podcast, they're advised to visit the University of Leeds Mental Health Support Area, Student Support or their own GP. Please be aware that Humans of Healthcare is not a substitute for professional counselling support. You can follow us on Facebook, Humans of Healthcare Leads podcast, Instagram, Humans of Healthcare podcast, or Twitter at Humans of Health P. We are always looking to get more students and staff in healthcare onto the show to talk about their experiences. If you'd like to be a guest, please submit some bullet pointed key messages of your story to Humans of Healthcare at leads.ac.uk. The show was recorded and edited by Dan Myers in MTC Studios.